Okay, so we're in our third week of why we are Protestant, and um, we're we're in the part of the class that's going over the history and um, going over the history of the Reformation. I think history is something that sometimes as Christians we we don't think about as deeply as we ought to. Um, but you, the, a lot of the ideas that we have and the the practices that we have as a church, they have a history. Um, I think, ironically, sometimes our belief that um, only the Bible, right, is our source of, of truth and, and revelation that I agree with, but that leads us to not want to study history of where, where people standing up for that idea, right? And I think that's important. I really do. And hopefully as we go through this class, you'll see why why these things are important. Ideas have consequences. And as we look at the past, we're not looking at the, the Protestant Reformation <laughs> There's a couple things about the lenses through which we're looking at it. We're not trying to look at it through a, a rosy lens where we're going to ignore any problems, ignore any wrong thoughts or ideas, um, difficulties or struggles. Um, we want to wrestle with these ideas fairly, right? But um, at the same time, we're looking at it as Protestants. I'm not claiming to be completely neutral. I mean, I am a Protestant. I'm teaching it as a Protestant. I'm trying to be fair with it. I'm not trying to... Uh, I'm going to do my best to be honest and truthful, but I I believe that Protestantism is correct. So I'm teaching it from that perspective. So those are the two things. I want to be fair and equitable. I don't want to say things that are not true or are biased in a in a untruthful, unfair way, but I also want to um, teach what I believe in a sense too. So the first week, we really talked about some of the major issues of the Reformation. And if you remember, we talked about, I think, foundational Maybe not where the Reformation really started, but but became the central issue of the Reformation in many ways was was this idea of sola scriptura. So when Martin Luther um, started to butt heads with the Catholic Church, the the Church kept coming back at him um, and saying, "Well, the Pope's authority, the Church's authority, councils have said," and Luther kept going back to the Scriptures, and it became an issue. He got cornered, if you remember, in this debate by the guy whose name means corner. Um, he got cornered in this debate into saying, no, it's, you're appealing to the Bible rather than papal authority. And that really became the issue, right? Is it scripture that determines what, what we believe, determines truth, or um, the, is it the church? And that became kind of the central issue, or at least the foundational issue. Other issues, is it, are, are we saved by grace through faith alone, as Luther's going to say? Um, or are we saved by cooperation between our works and our faith? So Catholics would not say that we're saved by works. They would say we're saved by grace, but through the sacraments, through works, right? So that there's, it's so the, the operative word in all of these debates is the word only. So the reformers are going to say scripture only. It's not that the church said that scripture doesn't matter or doesn't have authority, but it's the, the scripture through the church, right? Faith only, grace only, Christ only. Those are the operative words, and that's really where the, the debate goes. So last week we talked about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was an interesting person, an extreme person in a lot of ways. And he uh, he began as a, as a monk in his life, really had this uh, con- conflicted nature. He, he wanted to know that he could have some kind of assurance of salvation, I suppose you could say. And he, he never knew if he did enough. He spent hours and hours and hours 
an agonist confession to his confessor, um, not, not knowing if he had confessed enough, not knowing if his confessions were genuine, not knowing if his Hail Marys and Our Fathers, I don't think they actually did Hail Marys then, but his Our Fathers were genuine. So he had to do Our Fathers to, to, um, to you know, pay for his sins in that sense. It, but did I really mean it? Did I really mean it? So have I done enough? And this, this idea, as he studied scripture, as he studied Galatians and Romans, that it's, it's all God. It's not, it's not a human work at all. It's all God changed his life and changed the way that he experienced God as well. So today, we're going to talk about Ulrich Zwingli. And I think of the, the major reformers, he's probably the one that's least well-known. And we're also going to talk about some of the radical reformation. Um, and when we talk about the radical reformation, it doesn't, I'm not saying radical reformation disparage it. There are some parts of it I would disparage, but that's just what it's called. It's taking the reformation to a more extreme, in a more extreme direction. And that's typically what we call it. So the Anabaptists will, will move out from there. So let's start with, uh, our friend Ulrich. So Ulrich Zingli was born on January 1st. So New Year's day, 1484 in Vinhaus in the Swiss Alps. So at the age of 22, he began his career as a priest, uh, but he quickly joined the papal army as a chaplain. So in those days, the Pope had an army. That's not true today. Um, that's kind of an interesting concept to us. And this is, maybe we can have some discussions. I, I think it very much fits the, um, the sermon series, uh, Christ and Culture, right? But how do we relate to power? How do we relate to the state? Um, we think radically different than not only the church in the Middle Ages, but also the reformers in the Middle Ages of how the church and the state relate. Um, this is going to take time to develop to where any of our ideas would make sense to anybody. But anyway, he joins the papal army as a chaplain. He was very patriotic in the sense that he loved Switzerland, and this was, this was important to him. But they marched in a ba- uh, battle against the French in, de- in defense of, of the Pope, and in a battle in 1515, uh, they met the uh, army of King Francis I, and the Swiss were brutally slaughtered. More than 10,000 of them were killed. And th- this had a profound impact on him. He, he, there's, he wrote some laments for the, the Swiss, the, the young Swiss boys being killed and slaughtered. And, and he, it, it's kind of this whole thing. Remember in Germany, you ha- you're having money that's going to Rome from Germany, kind of going in. And the Germans are like, well, this isn't really fair. And he's having a similar sort of experience that Swiss are dying for the Pope, right? This is this this he has a struggle with this. So his his patriotism versus his loyalty um, to the Pope, and it shook his faith in the Church and in the Pope. In 1516, very similar to Luther, um, and this is the year it was published, by the way. So he bought it right off the press. Zwingli bought a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And for the first time in his life, he read the Bible. Uh, he begins reading the Bible. So again, a lot of times, the, my, my kind of idea of the Reformation was that you know, the priests and the clergy had the Bible, but the regular people didn't. That's really not even true. Most of the, the lower-level priests and monks and clergy, they didn't have the Bible either. They were just doing things that they were handed down from, from higher-ups. So they weren't even preaching or reading the Bible themselves, but his his reading of the Bible changed his life and his outlook. He was so enthusiastic that he copied Paul's letters himself by hand and memorized them in Greek, by the way, which is not his first language. <laughs> so, 
Um, I have not done that. Um, he memorized most of the New Testament in Greek, which pretty impressive. I, I know some people have memorized the whole New Testament in English, but um, memorizing it in Greek that that takes some that takes some <laughs> some uh, enthusiasm and stick to itness for sure. Um, but like Luther, Zwingli is not trying to break with the church, especially not initially. That's not his intention. So the early reformers are going to try to reform the church. And by the way, there, there have been many people in the past that had tried to do this without breaking from the church. They had tried to reform the church. Part of it is the church's reaction that forces this. And part of it is the, the lack of confidence that we now have in the church. And part of it is the printing press that spreads this to people so quickly that this is why this time is different, right? It's not that there's never been reform movements before, but we're kind of in a time period where these things blow up. So whether they're intending to or not. So for the time being, he remained in the Roman church. He, but he began to study Hebrew. So I read the Bible in Greek and memorized most of it in Greek. Now I need the Old Testament. Um, he, he got a, a pension from the, from the church. So he's still in the church. He's not outside of the church at this point. And, um, he spent most of his money on books. Sounds like my kind of guy. Um, he wanted to study and understand scripture more deeply. Now, in 1518, he was appointed to a prestigious post as a preacher in Zurich. Um, Zurich. And his, his views are not um, controversial yet. But very quickly they did. So on January 1st, on his own birthday again, in 1519, he created a stir by announcing that he would no longer preach from set liturgies, but directly from the Bible itself. And he began in Matthew. So Matthew's gospel, and when he was done with Matthew, he's doing Mark. Done with Mark, he's going to do Luke. He's going to preach through the whole New Testament, verse by verse. And um, if you want to kind of know the history of what we do, in some ways it kind of starts with people like Zwingli and Luther, like preaching from the Bible. We take that for granted. But these ideas have a history, and these were radical, crazy ideas in the time period that they live. If you're preaching directly from the Bible, um, that's going to create chaos and disorder. In some ways it does. So he does not immediately break from Rome, but he he's following Martin Luther's stand. He's paying attention to what Luther is doing. He encourages his congregation to read Luther's books. So he's kind of admiring Luther from afar, but he's not breaking from the church. He's still in the church. He's not seeing himself as something different. But in 1519... Um, he has a near-death experience with the plague. And this really um, changes him, kind of like Martin Luther's lightning moment, right? Where Luther is afraid for his life, not sure if he's going to survive, and so he becomes a monk. So he, 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 he made the statement that he wanted to do something bold for God. It's this kind of realization that of my own mortality, that I could die, and what am I going to do with my life? So he, he more directly enters the Reformation fray. Now, Personality-wise, he's more cautious. He's more slow-moving than Luther. Um, but he was also afforded more tolerance by Rome, in part because the Rome, uh, Rome really depended on the Swiss. Um, that's where their army came from. So the, the Switzerland pretty much made up the, the papal army. And so the, the Pope really couldn't afford to turn them against him, that he needed them. So even during this time, while Luther is being condemned, um, Zwingli is is actually getting still getting money from the Pope and the Church, even while he's preaching some of the same ideas. So this is a, a slower revolution, at least a Reformation, at least to begin with, um, partly because of, of politics. But Zwingli's approach was to focus on individual hearts 
and preach the scriptures to um, effect change. Um, Now, after being accused of being a heretic, but not formally charged, he wrote 67 theses. So, you know, Martin Luther wrote his 95 theses. I guess Vingley's a little uh, less wordy. He wrote 67. In them, he argued that Christ is the true head of the church rather than the pope, and that Christ rules the church through his word, not through the pope. So how, how, is the, how is the church governed? It's not Christ through the Pope. It's Christ through his word. That's, that's his, his Vinglian idea. He also argued that Christ's death, death was effective once for all and did not need to be repeated in the Mass. And that's the, kind of the idea that the, the Mass is a repetition, a reenactment of Christ's death. And again, from a Catholic perspective... The, the elements are truly the body and truly the blood of Jesus. So it's, it's since being re-sacrificed for you. Zwingli is saying no, that this is not a reenactment. His views are going to develop a little bit, but he's eventually going to call it a memorial of, of Christ's death. It's a remembrance, not a real reenactment. Let's see. He also attacked praying to the saints rather than God. He attacked the doctrine of purgatory on the basis that it wasn't scripture. Um, and the idea that works contribute to salvation. So he's, he's again, moving further and further into Reformation ideas. In 1523, Zwingli was called to a public debate in Zurich to defend, defend his views, and um, he overwhelmed the, comp- the opposition. So this is, again, don't assume separation of church and state. This is a day in which the, the state is going to, going to have a, a, a position on church matters, on the religious matters. So there's a debate and the city council is going to rule what kind of city are we going to be? Zurich. So Zwingli debates his opponents and the the city council rules that from now on we are only going to preach from the Bible. That's all that's legal in in Zurich. So Zwingli founded schools for preachers and study the Bible. So kind of all the way from children on up. Did you get notes? as well as schools for, for pre- so preachers and for children all the way down. He also, like Luther, he translated the Bible into German. So Luther has a translation. And again, this is an idea to us is not radical. But to them, in, the, in this day, this is a radical idea that the Bible belongs in the hands of ordinary people. And remember, it's not even just the Bible. In those days, and really until Vatican II in the 1960s, in the Catholic Church, Everything was done in Latin. It wasn't done in the vernacular. So this is, it's, it's the words that matter. It's the actions that matter. It's the rituals that matter. Not so much understanding. So from, from Luther's perspective and from Cal, um, Calvin's perspective and Zwingli's perspective, this is something that ordinary people should have. They should have the Bible. They should hear preaching of the Bible um, in their own languages. And so translating the Bible into German um, uh, later into English, that this is central to the to the Reformation. But these are radical, crazy ideas in their day. To us, is like, of course, we have the Bible in our language. Okay, um, Zwingli also reads the Bible, and um, he sees that among the qualifications for elders, pastors, bishops, whatever word you want to use, it, it says husband of one wife. There's there's no prohibitions against marriage. Of the clergy, so he he gets married. Um, priests and monks follow suit, so they start emptying the monasteries, and priests start getting married, just like in Luther, with Luther. 
1525, the mass was abolished and replaced with communion. He put ordinary bread, ordinary wine um, in, the, in the front, and from now on, this is what we're going to do. And the laity receives the cup, not just the priest, because in those days, only the priest received the cup, and the laity re- would get the bread. But he ended that practice as, uh, as well. And um, Latin was no longer used. Henceforth, everything was in German. So, Zwingli the soldier. So, in 1531, and there's more. I, I'm I am summarizing this pretty quickly. There's a there's a lot more back and forth going on here. But in 1531, the Catholic cantons of Switzerland. So Switzerland was divided into cantons, and some of them followed the Reformation, and some of them didn't. And there was some going back and forth here. And um, the other Protestant cantons didn't didn't go into battle initially. But Zwingli leads his army from Zurich in defense against the Catholic cantons, but he's way outnumbered, and he gets slaughtered. They get soundly beaten in the battle. He is wounded, and then he's captured. The captain of the Catholic forces demanded that he pray to Mary. He refused to. He was stabbed to death. His body was burned, and his ashes were mixed with dung. Um, His probable last words were, and there's so a lot of these sorts of things, like we're not really sure if he said that. This one has pretty good, um, you know, background, uh, support for it. So sometimes you don't know for sure, but you can kill the body, but you cannot kill the soul. So that's Vingley. Any, any thoughts or questions or observations before we move on to the Radical Reformation? We're going to return to Zwingli and talk about his debate with Luther here in a little bit. But any thoughts on Zwingli up to this point? Almost kind of happening in the same time frame. Yeah, he's he is very close to Luther. Mm-hmm. So Luther is fifteen seventeen is the the Wittenberg the door in Wittenberg, and he's he's kind of happening at the same time. So they're both influenced by Erasmus, the guy who translated the, the came up with the Greek New Testament, and they're starting to read the Bible in, in Greek and study the Bible. Um, but it seems as if. From the reading I've done, you know, scholars always have different opinions on these sorts of things, but most most scholars seem to agree that Zwingli arrived at his conclusions independent of Luther. So he, he heard Luther, he was in conversation with Luther at points, um, but he wasn't just following Luther. And they're going to come to blows, <laughs> not literally, but yeah, good, yeah. Uh, yeah, quick comment and a question. So I, if I'm not mistaken, I think even today, the Swiss Guard is is what protects the Vatican City, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not the not the Italian yeah. military. Mm-hmm. So right, but back then, <laughs> it was actually like an army that. I mean, right. today I I don't know that the the Pope ever sends the Swiss Guard into war. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but um, back then they did. So this is again from Zwingli's perspective. We could we could try to ignore. There's politics is involved here. Yeah. So it's easy for us to just see these as purely spiritual matters, but um, you know, with politics was involved with Luther, and politics is involved here. Swiss are dying for an Italian pope. That's a real struggle if you're a Swiss, and as you have less confidence because of the history of corruption in the papacy, you're also less likely to put up with it. Right. Right. But go ahead. And then I was also just curious about where the church tradition of um, priests staying celibate, not marrying, came from? Or Yeah, that developed um, pretty early, but I, I think it, it comes from, 
So I love Augustine. A lot of the reformers went back to Augustine too. But, um, but when you read Augustine on, on sexuality, for instance, he had a very negative view on it. And it, um, so, for instance, talking about marriage, he said the ideal marriage would be a celibate marriage. Um, and I think that comes from sort of Greek views of um, the, the body kind of being bad and the physical world being bad and the spiritual being good. So that was actually similar to a lot of Greek understanding that the, the ideal man was somebody who wasn't um, bound to you know, physical uh, needs and expressions, I suppose. He was independent of that. Um, some of that comes from Plato. So I think the church, especially as it moved away from its Jewish roots um, and became more Greek, kind of started to adopt some of these ideas. And so sexuality is something that is not spiritual. So as you, you're separating the laity and the priests, that they're focused on the spiritual world. They're fo- the laity, they're, they live in the physical world. And so... Those, those two things don't go together. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah. So it, it happens over time, but it, it happens pretty early. And I think, and this is something to think about in terms of our sermon series too, of culture has a, culture and cultural assumptions have a big impact on how we see things. Mm-hmm. And we might be blind to things because we're just, we're seeing things through certain lenses that aren't necessarily Christian or biblical. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, this is an early, it's not like, a couple hundred years old. It happened fairly early on. And it became official church dogma. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. now it's forever. Yeah, now it's forever. And I, and with the some of the, the scandals in the Catholic Church lately, there's a lot of people who think that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But the, the church can't... They're kind of... Hands are tied on those sorts of things. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's a difficult issue for them, for sure. Um, yeah, any other thoughts on that? Celibacy and... Well, that, have yeah. um, rabbis like that in ancient times, were they always able to get married? Yeah, they, rabbis were married. Jewish rabbis still married. So from a Jewish perspective, like those are good things, mm-hmm. right? So that the, the um, you know, having children and passing yeah. on your family line and it, so I, I think, again, a lot of this is as the church lost, can moved away from its its Jewish Old Testament roots to more being dominated by Greek thinking um, than some of these some of these kind of Greek ideas filtered in. Yeah. Um, I, I would also I mean, say, just kind of try to have some balance here, that maybe sometimes in, the, in our churches today, we have perhaps the opposite problem. So if you read in, um, in Corinthians from Paul, he has a very high view of, of celibacy and a high view of, um, of single people, right? That there's, there is something that, that you, you can be dedicated to the gospel and to the church as a single person. And there's certain advantages of that. Um, and I think sometimes in our culture, um, I, I, so I was married when I was 26. It's not that old. But I sometimes felt like administering in the church that I wasn't really viewed as a full adult until you get married, right? And I, I'm sure that the older you get, especially maybe as a male pers- male perspective, you're even like looked on as 
something wrong with you or don't trust a, a man who's not married. Um, and I, I, I think from, for women too, that's sometimes you're not a full adult if you're not married. So we have some, maybe the opposite. We swung the opposite way. Whereas um, Paul was not married, right? Jesus wasn't married. Um, a lot of the, a lot of early church fathers were not married. So yeah, I, I, we, we can swing the other way too, but it's not a biblical idea that clergy and priests shouldn't be. And that came more from a negative view of, of sexuality or an over separation of spiritual and physical, at least. Good. Any other thoughts or on these things? Yeah. I wonder if Augustine's position was a reaction to his own youth. I, I think that's that's a, that's a fair question. I don't know if you, any of you've ever read Confessions. It's a worthy read. I again, I love Augustine. I also feel free to disagree with him. But he struggled with sexuality. <laughs> he really did, and he saw it as again that that which was keeping him from God. Mm. So um, he, there's this famous line: "Is Lord make me? Uh, it's not celibate. What's the word? Chaste. Chaste. Make me chaste." But not yet. <laughs> I want to enjoy my sin a little while longer. So make me chase, make me chase, but not yet. But, I mean, from our perspective today, when Augustine finally became chaste, what he did, in my mind, is awful. He sent away his concubine and his, um, in, you know, from him um, and had not, you know, what I would say deserted her, like had nothing to do with her, sent her away. Um didn't really like treat her like a real person, so I would struggle with that, right? But for him, this was I'm turning away from my sensual, sexual sin in my life and starting <clears throat> new. And so this is a good, I think, theological thing for us to think about. It really does, in my mind, relate to what we're talking about in this sermon series of how do we relate in this world, in this life, in culture, those sorts of things. It relates. It really does. So are we completely separate or... Are we completely integrated? Neither <laughs> is the answer. And I think some of the reformers are going to make some mistakes here as we move forward. So, good. Any other thoughts before I move on to the Radical Reformation? Now, when we start the Radical Reformation, um, I'll just, you know, some of these guys are crazy. We'll start, <laughs> start there. But the crazy people help you understand some of the reactions against the less crazy people, too. Because there's a real fear here that certain ideas are going to totally turn society upside down on its head, and they can't be tolerated. Okay, So, the Radical Reformation and the Anabaptists largely came out as Zwingli's movement in Zurich, but they took the Reformation to further extremes than he did. Now, if you remember when we talked about Luther last week, um, Luther came back from in hiding to kind of stop some of the things that were happening in Wittenberg. Like, they were just starting to burn, uh, burn buildings down and um, pulled priests out of the you know, buildings and rough them up or kill them. Um, and he came back and was like, no, 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 no. It's not the physical, it's not the you know, physical buildings that are the problem. It's the ideas. It's the heart. That's the problem. And he, he kind of stopped this. But elsewhere, these ideas spread and were uncontainable. So three radicals in particular rocked Europe and threatened to show her, uh, throw her into chaos. First is Thomas Munster. So Thomas Munster believed that God spoke to him directly. So he talked about the inner word and the outer word. The outer word is the Bible, and the inner word is God speaking to me directly, and the inner word is superior to the outer word. Now, this is a this is a movement away from sola scriptura, but he's seeing it as like, 
taking it to its logical conclusion, which Luther and Calvin and Zwingli are completely against here. Um, Richard, you brought up, um, and I was thinking about this, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but the Enlightenment, right? And um, the, the, the Reformers wouldn't have agreed with the Enlightenment, but the Enlightenment is, is putting human reason on the throne, whereas you know, the Catholic Church um, in, their, in that day is putting you know, the church on the throne. And what the Reformers are saying is Scripture is on the throne. Um, and they would not say human reason. So Luther and Calvin um, emphasize a lot like when, uh, this idea of a paradox or this idea of when two ideas, if it doesn't seem to fit, we believe it anyway if this is what Scripture teaches. So Scripture before reason, even if we can't make reason work with it. But So they, they wouldn't have gone that route. This is, again, they would say they're putting maybe the Holy Spirit on the throne, but who? <laughs> the Spirit's telling you something different than it's telling me. The Reformers are saying, like Zwingli, that God rules through his word. But here, God is ruling through my inner being. Right? And so this is going to lead to lead to some chaos. So Munster took Luther's idea of our spiritual equality before God and extrapolated that the necessity of social equality and the elimination of any inequality should be done away with. So he wants to do away with, um, oh, there's rich and there's poor, there's powerful and there's unpowerful. So he, um, he revolts. So Munster led the German peasants, uh, the German peasants revolt that was slaughtered by a professional army, didn't go very well. He was tortured and beheaded. But other people picked up these ideas. So Jan Mathis, I don't know if that's right, but he predicted that the city of Munster, that's kind of irritating. You have Munster with the Z, that's the guy, and then Munster the city without the Z, um, different but related. But Mathis predicted the city of Munster in Germany would be the new Jerusalem. So he's, he's kind of in this vein of eschatological figuring things out, and he figures out, hey, eschaton is now, and Munster is the new Jerusalem, and Armageddon is about to happen, um, and we're going to win. So his followers all went to Munster, they took over the city, they outlawed infant baptism, made adult baptism mandatory, and enforced, really, communism. And it's kind of maybe a proto, you know, using that word beforehand, but that's really what they did. And uh, he, when this army came to surround the city, um, he ran out there by himself to attack the army, saying that God would defeat the army, um, he would be able to defeat them single-handedly. That didn't happen, and he was killed. So, um, so he, Munster was taken over by Jan Van Leiden, and he led Munster into further chaos. He, he instituted polygamy. He said there's polygamy in the Old Testament. He had 16 wives, this guy did. Um, he, and offenses such as complaining, scolding your parents, refusing adult baptism, were punishable by death. You complained, we're going to go hang you. Um, he, he killed one of his wives publicly for um, murmuring against him. I forget the exact thing, but not, not obeying him fully, I guess. Um, so finally, this is, this is not a good place to live, right, Munster? So two citizens of Munster actually opened the gates to the Catholic and Lutheran armies. The Catholic and Lutherans got together, and they're like, this guy needs to be taken care of. So the Catholic Lutheran army came in, and they actually slaughtered most of the people in the city, um, is what happened. And that was put into. Now, the reason I, I mention these guys, they're not my guys, right? <laughs> so, um, but Catholics and Protestants together are going to be extremely hostile to the Anabaptist movement. And part of that is this, that this, this, these kinds of ideas lead to chaos. 
um, Luther called them the, sh the swarmers. I forget the German word, but it's just like there's these bugs all over the place. It's, it's irritating and throwing everything into chaos. Um, so there, there's going to be a reaction against these guys. But on the other side, there's a guy named Minno Simons, from whom came the Mennonites. Um, he was a Dutchman, and he admired the Anabaptists from Zurich, which we'll talk about in a minute. So he eschewed violence. Um, he preached pacifism. And largely through his influence, the violent beginnings of the Rad Radical Reformation were turned away from uprising and political revolution. He preached adult baptism and other Anabaptist doctrines. Throughout his um, lifetime, he was pursued. They tried to kill him. And somehow, even though everybody's trying to kill this guy, he actually lived to his 60s and died of old age. He was never caught. But that's, that's where the Mennonites came from, is this guy. And again, pacifism and somehow how you relate to the to the government, how you relate to secular government, is really in the in the non um, non participatory sort of idea that there's the world and there's the church and they're completely separate. That's more the Anabaptist idea. All right, any thoughts on the Radical Reformation up to this point? You see, we're also used to not killing people we disagree with. Um, <laughs> that <laughs> we react against it. Good. I, I, I don't want to go kill people I disagree with. But again, what I want you to see at least, to be kind of look at some of these things fairly, is those are newer, newer ideas. The Kind of the belief of the Lutherans later on, the Calvinists and the Catholics alike, is that if we, uh, if we tolerate these ideas, then society itself will be turned on its head. And there's, there's no end to it. So especially with the Anabaptists, there's a real fear of that happening. So we're back, we're moving back in time a little bit, but we're moving back to Zurich, and um, Zwingli's back alive. So sorry about the order. But during Lent, men in Zurich created a scandal. They had a sausage eating party during Lent. <laughs> it's this kind of idea that Lent is a human institution. Um, you don't eat meat during Lent. Was it was kind of like today? Everybody just kind of chooses to do whatever they want for Lent. It's become kind of this individual expression. Um, that's very American of us. But in those days, that Lent, you, that's what you gave up. You gave up eating meat during the 40 days leading up to, to uh, Jesus' crucifixion. So they're like, this isn't in the Bible. There's nothing scriptural about this. So let's have a sausage party. And that created a, a scandal. Now, Zwingli, he didn't join in it. He, he didn't really want to be, you know... He didn't want to defy people with sausages. He wanted to preach the Bible. <laughs> that wasn't his, his jam. But he did defend them, saying there, there's nothing wrong with what they did. So he, he outwardly was defending them, but he didn't participate. But this actually kind of foreshadows future developments in Zurich. So there's, there's this more of this move of let's break from Rome more radically. And Zwingli is not moving fast enough is kind of the idea. Um, so they wanted revolution. In 1524, some ra radical Protestants, this is crazy for us, what we called radical perhaps, but they began to preach against infant baptism and advocated for adult baptism only. Now, um, that's, that's what our church does. We do adult baptism, or at least we should say believer's baptism, right? So we'll baptize a, a, a child. My son was baptized recently, but it's, it's believer's baptism rather than infant baptism. It's the idea that we're saved by faith, and so until a child or a person has faith and shows faith, they can't, they're not saved, and baptism is a symbol of that. Now, 
This is actually consistent with Zwingli's theology, because when we talk about the Lord's Supper, he talks about the Lord's Supper as a symbol. It's not, it's not Jesus's bread, uh, Jesus' Jesus's body isn't the bread, and Jesus' um, blood isn't the, the wine. There are symbols of that. And what these radical reformers are saying, that's the same thing of baptism, that baptism is a symbol of salvation. But this is really where church and state come together in the medieval world. Because baptism is also where you really become a citizen. You're, you're named, you're, this is where you're named. This is where you're, you're put into the roles, as it, will, as, it, as it were. So to attack infant baptism is really also throwing the whole state into chaos. Do you, you kind of see that a little bit? It's, 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 it, it's, it's a bigger move um, than people were ready for. So Zwingli and Bullinger, his kind of right-hand guy, they debated these factions. Again, remember, the city council judges who wins and what we're going to go for. So the city council says Zwingli wins the debate, um, but this didn't stop the movement. So these guys began to be known as Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers. So there are people who rebaptize you. So if you're baptized as an infant, that baptism doesn't count because you weren't a believer yet. Whereas um, Luther would say, Luther and Zwingli had interesting views on this. So Zwingli would say that the, the kind of the faith of the parents counted for something. It's, it's faith of what God will do in this, in this infant. Luther believed in basically whispering the gospel into the, the baby's ears and that the baby could have some sort of, of faith um, when he was baptized. So they're both trying to say, yeah, no, faith is involved here. Um, but you can kind of see that both of them are rather difficult positions. To, to go with. So these guys really are taking Zwingli's ideas to their logical conclusions, but people aren't ready for this. So this is seen as an existential threat um, to society. Baptism is where church and state meet. The fabric of society is seen as being in danger. So the Council of Zurich decreed that Anabaptists be drowned. Um, and this is sort of this whole thing of like, well, you want to rebaptize people, we'll, we'll baptize you, but just permanently. It's kind of a twisted way of responding, but that's, it's, it's like a fitting punishment. But these Anabaptists were different than Munster and the Munsterites. Um, they did not lead um, violent rebellions, but they really practiced and believed in the idea of nonviolence. Um, so they, many of them would just allow themselves to be drowned. They went willingly to their deaths. They were, they, they believed any form of violence was wrong, even defending yourself in that sense. The Hutterites, which are, uh, were a, a prominent Anabaptist sect, um, they require the accept, uh, acceptance of these seven articles of faith. This is kind of give you an idea of what the Anabaptists believe differently than the other reformers. Believers' baptism, shunning sinners. Now, this guy, this is, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in these kinds of churches or know of these kinds of churches, but this is, if, if, a, if there's a, a person in your church that is in in sin right and unrepentant you you shun them so you don't even talk to them you don't even acknowledge them and some of these churches when you got married you would have to agree as husband and wife that if one of your if your spouse went into a sin and was to be shunned by the church you would shun them too right so this is this is a very extreme sort of thing like you see them you don't talk to them you just completely ignore them and it's, it's um, kind of like church discipline, but they took it very seriously. Lord's Supper is for baptized believers only. They believed in this very strong, radical separation from the world. They instituted pastors. 
to lead the church, complete pacifism. As an Anabaptist, there's no use of the sword or war, and abstinence from oaths. So even in our country today, <coughs> you can say when you're swearing into court that I affirm rather than I swear. And that's because the Anabaptists took Jesus' words very literally in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, you shall not swear either by heaven or by earth, those sorts of things. So they took those words literally. And more than any other group, the Anabaptists were fiercely persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants. Um, they were not just as a theological threat. They were seen as a political one. Really, the idea is that their ideas spread. Society couldn't function. This is going to lead to a complete breakdown. Today... We're like, yeah, people can have different views and we can function as a society. That's kind of a uh, of an assumption of ours. Not an assumption in the days of, of Calvin, Luther, um, and, the, and the church. Uh, any last, any thoughts um, about the, the Anabaptists? So we'll say, we're, if you're trying to find like our history, how we trace our history, we, um, churches like ours don't really come from the Anabaptists. And we're more go, when we get into the English Reformation, really more where churches like ours come from. Um, but there's some similarities between the Anabaptists and, and our circles here. But any, any thoughts about the Anabaptists or their response here? Matt, just a quick word about uh, shunning. I think um, it, it kind of gets a, it has a bad reputation as being mm-hmm. kind of cruel and cold. I, I think the intention of, of shunning with, within these churches is to bring mm-hmm. people back into yeah. the fold or right. somehow to convict them. Right. Yeah. Well, we still we still believe in that. Yeah. Um, but the way that they practiced it, and some of them still practice it today, yeah. right. is a lot more extreme than what we do. Right. So it's today it's it's more like disfellowshipping you, but there it's hardcore <laughs> shunning. But absolutely, they would say that this is, this is love. Right, just like we would say with church discipline, that we're not um, removing somebody from the church because we hate them. We're removing them from the church in hopes that they repent. So the theology is similar. Um, the Anabaptists tended to take things very literally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, they're going to have more nuance to some of their interpretations. But you shall not swear means you shall not swear <laughs> to them. That that takes they, they they took that very word for word sort of thing. Yeah, good. Any other thoughts on the the complete pacifism without mm-hmm. Right, and this kind of goes with the extreme and this is part of why the Anabaptists are seen as such a threat. It seems separation of church and state to where it's not just separation of church and state, it's not participating in the state. So, you know, the, the, the state goes to war. You don't, because that's the world, not the church. So it's it's not not what we think of in the modern context um, of the church not having power over the state or the state having power over the church. It's, we're very, very far removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Nancy, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I just have a, it's irrelevant, but it's bugging me to death. That's point of confusion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I had it in my head that, Swing, that Zwingli um, was baptizing believers and was drowned in Zurich for doing that. No. So who do I have him confused with? Any, any number of the Anabaptists, perhaps. Okay. So um, maybe it's Hutter. I think Hutter, I think that happened to okay. John Hutter. Okay, that could be. 
I'm not 100% sure, but it wasn't Zwingli. Yeah, yeah. well, obviously. No. Here, so. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, a lot of the, that happened to a lot of the Anabaptist leaders, not just one. Okay. It was uh, several of them. And then again, this was kind of that idea, it's twisted, but you're going to rebaptize people, we're going to rebaptize poetic justice. you with poetic justice. But again, think of it in this sense. I'm not justifying that, but there is a, you want, we want to understand people in their context, right? So, in though, in, especially from a Catholic perspective here, but also from a Lutheran perspective, um, that a baby that's baptized will then go to heaven if it dies, right? And a baby that's not will go to hell. So, Anabaptists are leading children to go to hell because they're not being baptized. So from that kind of extreme, this this is seen as a really terrible thing that they're not baptizing children. That now these children are not being put into a state of grace. Remember, half the people didn't live to age 12 in that context. So when we have babies die, that's that's a tragedy to us. It's a tragedy to them, but it was a common tragedy to them, whereas to us, it's not as expected. Did you, did you have your hand up? Yeah, um, I, I was getting off in my thinking about the act of shunning yeah. as a, a means of discipline mm-hmm. or whatever, and thinking how we've kind of gotten away from that, but I think my thought is that uh, in these times when shunning was so effective, mm-hmm. that cities were built around the church, there was yes. a church. Yes, and, yes. You know, we right. Have, that cities have become huge now, mm-hmm. multiple churches, and so you shun somebody if you practice that, they go somewhere else. Right. It doesn't impact them like it did in the past where there was one place mm-hmm. where people worshipped and yep. everyone knew everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's not as powerful as it might have been, and it doesn't bring people back. Like yeah. It just takes sense of somewhere else. That's a great point. I mean, so today, mm-hmm. even with church discipline, it loses its effectiveness because you just kind of go to another church and we kind of have a less, a lesser value on commitment to, you know, a particular mm-hmm. body. We're much more likely to move. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's that definitely. exactly what happens most often. Right. Well, and we talked about the Catholic mm-hmm. scandals a little bit with, you know, the, the, the scandals of molest, molesting children and all of that. And I think part of that comes from the weakness of people at the top being corrupt and that filters down very quickly, right? But in, in Baptist-type churches, um, which we're not a Baptist church, but we're similar in terms of church government, um, you almost can have the opposite weakness. So there was in, I think it was in Kentucky, there was a whole string of um, uh, kind of youth pastor-type people working with youth that were fired from their jobs for inappropriate, and then they just went to another job. And because there's not really a whole lot of communication, you're just getting hired, and there's not a whole lot of structure, they're, just, they're jumping from church to church to church, and people are settling in the church rather than prosecuting it. And that was a, that was a recent scandal in more like Baptist-type churches. So it's kind of an opposite problem, right, where you have at the top corruption versus no organization at all to prevent that sort of corruption. Well, they move the priest around. Right. If you've seen that movie Spotlight, the priest yeah. would just be moved to different places. Right, and that's, that's there's a lot of reasons for that. And, and right now the Catholic Church is in a kind of a state of trying to reckon with that, right? It, but it there's a shortage of priests was part of it. 
part of it is, you, again, when you have a lot of power centered in one person, then corruption is kind of easy to be disseminated down from that. But, um, and then, you know, however we want to wrestle with the, the celibacy thing. But, the yeah, there's different forms of government, church and political, have different problems with it. And so I, I do think it's something for us to think about thoughtfully of, okay, we don't have super strong connections with other churches and church networks, um, but there is a need for some, <laughs> right? <coughs> and so there's weaknesses to ours, especially when you can just kind of move from church to church to church. Church discipline doesn't mean much, and you know, people can kind of bounce around and cause the same problems. Adam, you had your hand up. Uh, question of clarity: Did yeah. the because I know they're similar in their pacifism, but did the Quaker movement did, is that related to? Did yeah. I come out of the they Anabaptist? They came out of the Anabaptist okay. movement. Yeah. So Mennonites, Quakers, Amish. Amish. Mm-hmm. Trying to think of other other groups, but yeah, those all came out of the Mennonite. Baptists are going to come out of the Anglican, yeah. which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But, yeah. Any other questions or thoughts? I'm still still yeah. shunning things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking in terms of how how it could work. Right. How, how could you still use that? Because if if it's done rightly, it's less I think less destructive to, mm. to people. Mm-hmm. You know. And it does. The only way I think you could do it is if you had such a close relationship with people within the church that you couldn't bear to right. to lose it. But even mm-hmm. Even then, we we mess up because it almost becomes cultish. Then, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. You, you, uh-huh. How do you avoid that right. extreme? I mean, you're, yeah. kind of, you're shunning someone and they go mm-hmm. somewhere else, or you're creating this relationship right. that is so needy mm-hmm. that you know, right? That the sh- yeah, the, the body becomes too interdependent. Almost is that possible? But, right. but maybe. No, no. I think you're making a good point. And I, I think, um, yeah, I'm feeling what you and Richard are saying, and that maybe our reaction against it is, well, that's too extreme, and maybe we're too, too soft, in that sense. But it's hard. It's hard. I, I, I don't want to. I'm on being recorded, so I'm careful. <laughs> but I, I can think of a particular instance um, when I was a youth pastor at a different church, and um, there was somebody who was not a member. So I'm like, what do you do with somebody who's not a member? I mean, um, and somebody who was a member who they left each other's spouses and said God told them to and, you know, created so much pain for their children. It was awful, really, really awful. So what did we, what had happened is they were removed from church membership. Or she was, he wasn't, because he wasn't a member. And that's about it, right? It's like, and they, you know, just go to another church somewhere else and, um, so that I think that's a problem. That's a problem. So church discipline, yeah, you can remove them from the congregation. I think the the bigger metropolitan area you're in, the harder that is. So um, the the desire of, of shunning or church discipline is to cause repentance. But when it's just I now I have a problem in this church and I can go somewhere else. So I think perhaps we we do need to affirm church relationships. We need to have relationships with each other, even if we don't agree on everything. If we're we're evangelical, if we're churches that are, you know, Bible believing, gospel believing churches, 
then I, I think there needs to be at least some level of <coughs> interconnectivity and cooperation there to. Right. Right. The leader isn't saying, the, "You follow me, I'm God." Kind well, of this thing. is and this is part of the difficulty of being Protestant. Mm -hmm. This is part of the difficulty of being Protestant. Is this there's less connection at the top. The difficulty of stronger denominationalism is the whole movement can go quicker. But um, we're not really talking about it in this class, but if you move into the the, 20th, the 19th and 20th centuries with kind of liberal modernistic thought, a lot of mainline Protestant denominations went very liberal. And um, so there was even further splintering. And now we have all tons and tons and tons of groups. I think for good reasons. And now we have difficulties with that. Staying in the denomination gives you certain advantages. But when the group goes bad, there's, there's a point in which you have to separate. So this, this is, I think this is one of the difficulties that we have to wrestle with, with being Protestant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, any other thoughts? Good. All right. I, I hope you're seeing how history helps us. It's, we're not dealing with completely different issues. There have been people who have struggled with these things in the past, and the things that we believe now <coughs> come from the past in some sense, and we're wrestling with them anew. You know, we don't have everything figured out. But All right, Zwingli and Luther, uh, coming back to Zwingli and Luther. Uh, so in 1529, after years of debate, so Zwingli and Luther are kind of writing letters and books back and forth, and for the most part, I mean, this is the Middle Ages, and debates were a little, even less civil than today. We'll put it that way. We tend to think of how bad the civility is today. Uh, it's always been bad, to be honest. But, um, you know, they're putting, you know, zingers back and forth at each other. But they meet, and the, the intent is, let's iron out our differences and present kind of a, a united Reformation front. And they have 15 articles to discuss, and they agree on 14 out of 15. They agree on 14 out of 15 of them. And Zwingli is, is really happy to agree to disagree on this. But Luther isn't. Right? But, but Zwingli's not willing to change his view. Zwingli is convinced he's right and thinks there's problems with Luther's view. But um, he's but Luther is <laughs> Luther sees Zwingli as a devil, basically, um, from this view. So and I'm going to agree with Zwingli. So Luther taught the doctrine of consubstantiation. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's complicated and it's strange. But transubstantiation, as you remember, is that the bread is literally becomes the body of Christ, and the blood, and the, the wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. I mean, it, the the outward appearance and taste and touch stays the same, but the identity of it changes. Luther denied that, but he said that the actual blood and body of Christ are present with the elements. So it doesn't change into it, but it's present with the elements. So for, for Zwingli, this is a descent back into what he would call Romanism. It, popism, I think is the word they use sometimes too. Popish. I, mean, I don't know if we use popish and popist now, but they did then. Um, it's saying that you got to eat the body and blood of Christ. It, that's part of your salvation. He's, he's also seeing it as idolatry, that we're worshiping something like physical, right? Rather than, than seeing the, the spiritual meaning behind it. So they, so Zwingli taught that the bread and wine were symbols of Jesus' body and blood, and that the Lord's Supper was a memorial of Jesus' sacrifice, not a reenactment of it. He took Jesus' words that this cup is a memorial to my blood. 
That, that's his argument. It's, it's a memorial to, it's not my blood, right? Um, as his support. Luther took Jesus' words as, this is my body, as proof for his side. And there's this kind of dramatic moment, very Luther of him, that Luther, before this debate starts, he comes in early in the morning, and he writes, this is my body, like on his table, and covers it with a, with a, um, a tablecloth or whatever. And then the debate's coming. Zwingli says, you don't have any scripture on your side. And then Luther pulls off the, <laughs> the tablecloth. He's like, this, you know, it's like, this is my body. He's, he's very dr- just dramatic Lutheran fashion. Um, but Luther, when this council ends and they don't come to an agreement, Zwingli cried. Like he literally is breaking down in tears because he, he believes that this, he, he wanted to be united with the Wittenbergers, as he called them. But Luther said, that Zwingli is seven times worse than a papist. One side, he stated, must be with the devil and God's enemy. There is no middle ground. And so sometimes people, why did we have to come to all these you know, different groups and denominations? Why couldn't there have been a united front? In large part, this was the moment. Um, they could not come to agreement on this. And I would say part of it is Luther's stubbornness. Um, and, you know, Luther was Luther, man. That's kind of the way he was. <laughs> so, so for Zwingli, Luther's view led back to his salvation by works rather than grace. If eating the Lord's body is necessary, then our works are contributing, and we're treating the blood, bread and wine as idols, putting our confidence in the flesh rather than Christ. His, his verse that he used a lot was, put no confidence in the flesh. And for him, that was what Luther was doing. All right, so kind of got to the end of my notes. I, all kinds of things we could talk about. We've had conversations here, but I, I think there's there's a lot we can think about in terms of unity and doctrinal purity. How about Luther and Zwingli? How important is it that we be unified? I think it is important. How important is doctrinal purity? That's important too. Putting how do we how do we decide to put later on? When can we agree to disagree? Versus when do we have to separate? Um, relationship of church and state. The Anabaptists bring a lot of those those sorts of things into view. Something we should be wrestling with and thinking about uh, during this series. Um, religious freedom, a new idea, um, not, not something anybody believed then. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. So kind of call it open forum. Any thoughts or questions or ideas on any of this? Uh, one thing, I guess, in favor of Sping, Spingley's um, communion in remembrance, mm-hmm. um, I think of the Jews and how mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. celebrated... Um, remembrances of things like the Passover, right? And I think when they celebrated Passover, there were all these symbolic elements right. mm-hmm. that I don't know of the Jewish teachings being that these things actually became the no, the original yeah. lamb, or, or right. but but it was it was symbolic, right? No, I think that's a great illustration. Um, they were they were symbolic, and again, um, the, the the foundation for the Catholic and the Lutheran view goes. Plato and Aristotle. It so Luther, yeah. It's not biblical. The idea of it changing into and there's some biblical texts that they point to mm-hmm. to support it, but but that's not a Jewish idea, certainly. Yeah. And it's it's actually really hard to imagine. I know that Jesus said, "This is my body," and it caused a stir, but it's really hard to imagine that coming from a, a Jewish perspective. Yeah. Of of there being this literal shift. And God actually yeah. commanded the Jews. Do these things mm-hmm. to, to call to mind, yep. you know, these mm-hmm. things, and they represent these things. Right. So that that's interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you. Any other thoughts on on that, or any of the other subjects that we 
touched on. So next week, we're going to hit my favorite. So if you don't know, my son's name is Calvin. And there's a reason. So we're going to talk about John Calvin. And um, so hopefully, you know, hopefully I'll be able to um, translate why I like the guy so much. Not perfect. Not perfect. Um, he, he is talking about separation church and state. The biggest knock people bring against Calvin is his, his role in having um, Michael Severtus put to death. Uh, we'll talk about that too. Michael Severtis was kind of in the Radical Reformation movement, but also denied the Trinity. Um, so that was, he was even more radical than the radicals. But um, he does have a role in that. But John Calvin also, I would say, of all these reformers we're talking about, um, is going to be most similar to the way that we preach and the way that we think um, up to this point. But anyway, yeah. One thing I've been thinking, and it's, I think it's related to whether we're looking at the reformers or we're looking at Puritans. I think I think we have to be careful. Like many times, we'll try to project our, we'll take them, take these them out of their current, out of, out of their cultural relative context. Yep. cultural mm-hmm. context, yep. and say, how could these believers, whether they owned slaves right. or whether they were drowning Anabaptists. Mm-hmm. How do how can if they were really saved? How could they are really right. believers? How could they have done uh-huh. those things? And to the point where you have some that are saying, "Well, are these people really even Christians?" Right. You know, there are people that are, you know you see things on social media like, "Well, if the Puritans were in our current context, they would be the alt right like crazy, um, you know, right wing people." Right. You know, it just it's just completely taking trying to take these people out of their cultural you context to, and you have to, let them live in right. their it's kind of like reality. visiting another country yeah. like if you're going to visit another country you need to understand the culture and the context of that country um rather than judge it through your own lens right that would just be a, a being a good <laughs> good guest yeah. and we're so quick to say oh if i if right. we lived then we would have mm-hmm. well i would have wouldn't have owned slaves or i right. wouldn't have done mm-hmm. x y or z when right how do you there's no way to 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 say that, and you, yeah. you have, we have to let these folks live in their own culture because right. it's, it's. There's no way to say that. Yeah, because it, it's so, yeah. it's so radically different. Yeah, that's, I'm trying to explain some yeah. of their background to that too. I think there's, you know, there's, there's two, two things here. One, studying the past and studying history, especially um, studying Christian history, I'd say, should cause us to question our own cultural assumptions. Right. That so their cultural assumptions and their their views are going to be radically different than ours in some ways, but we shouldn't imagine that it's only them that were affected by their culture and historical context. We are too, right? And so that that is a great way for us to um, triangulate almost our view of ourselves, and we're looking at ourselves through Scripture, but we do look at Scripture through our own lenses too, just like they did. Um, and there are things that I think are wrong about what Christians did in the past. And I feel confident about saying that they were wrong. Um, but we're, it's very easy for us to see their flaws. It's harder for us to see our own. And so I, I think this is part of the value of history. It's like getting another person's perspective on your life, but it's more like on a macro level than a micro level. And so we, we have to look at it honestly and deal with this difficulties. And these are our people. 
in a sense. Mm-hmm. Not everything they did was right, but um, and someday we'll be judged too. And I don't know that we're going to get off the hook for, uh, oh, that was what everybody believed in. Okay. <laughs> we need to be careful of that. And I think that's a, a, good, a good point. Yeah. Um, I've got a question here. Yeah. When can we agree to disagree? Yeah. That is, yeah. That is uh-huh. How do we answer that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I can answer that in yeah. two minutes. How do we answer yeah. that? Yeah. But I, and I, I think that, um, See, I'll help, I say, think of how to say this, but in our in our context too. And so there's there's different levels, I suppose. So um, we're talking about Christ and culture in this series. Um, thinking about Catholic Protestant issues, there's a lot of things when it comes to culture that we are going to agree with with Catholics in our current cultural day. We're both against um, abortion. We're both against this kind of secular. Um, many of the secular assumptions and um, reading about politics and um, reading about how how to how to live in the in a secular age um, I found a lot of Catholic writers helpful at times we, we have a lot of similar assumptions and foundations when it comes to that but when it comes to actually like being in a church right? There are some things you can't really disagree. You got it. You got to function in some ways, right? There's, there are. You you can't really agree to disagree on preaching from the Bible, either preaching from the Bible or you're not. You can't really agree to disagree on um, some of these issues about baptism. I mean, I guess you, I suppose you could try to practice both. I've heard of churches that do this: practice both infant baptism and adult baptism, but. That, that's that's difficult <laughs> um, if you believe that speaking in tongues is something that all Christians should do and should be part of worship versus you don't think speaking in tongues is for today sometimes maybe you could agree to disagree on some of those things but sometimes you can't so you can work with Christians I think um, on macro levels and then you know but it's, there's some some things you have to practice in your faith I've heard the question often, yeah. is it a hill to die on? Right. Um, and I struggle with that question mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes there are there are truths uh, that we think are not so important, but then when you really sit down and think about them and the ramifications of believing something and where it takes you, mm-hmm. uh, it may be a hill to die on. I think you know, all beliefs are important. I just don't think they're equally important. But we also don't want to be shooting our, our friends. <laughs> we we have a shortage of allies sometimes. And the, the worst thing for us to be doing is, um, you know, shooting our friends because we disagree on this very small point. So I, I do think thinking in terms of where... I'm not, not, I would never deny that a theological issue is important. I think they're all... They all matter. But... They don't all matter equally. And so there are some things that we can discuss, not come to the same page on, and still work together with, worship together, those sorts of things. I think unity is something we should be striving for. There are some things that perhaps we cannot be in the same church, but we still see these people as brothers and sisters in Christ that we can work with. There are some things perhaps that we could have alliances on in a, from a political perspective or on societal perspective or seeking human flourishing 
um, but maybe not on an evangelical perspective, like meaning our, our view of the gospel and those sorts of things. So there's, I would see it as not, it's, there's not, I don't see it as a simple answer. I see it as levels of, of how close. But yeah, Jay and I, for instance, I don't agree on everything. There, there are issues that we talk about theologically, and I'm completely comfortable being in the same church, and when he preaches on it, uh, on an issue I don't agree with, that's fine. I listen to him, and he he's fine with fine with me being on staff and not agreeing with him on everything. Um, but I mean, there would be certain things that I couldn't be on the same staff. I might love him and all those sorts of things. Um, so that yeah, that's. I'm not saying that the issues we disagree on don't matter. I'm just saying they they don't matter to the point of breaking fellowship. I think sorry, big importance is thinking yourself, mm. learning from the Word and thinking and right. praying and seeking and yeah. letting the Holy Spirit teach and and being humble though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I mean yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. thinking yourself, but on the same time like, if you You're doing that whole you have you, you have to do that in community, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even without the believers. So if I were to say, I've studied the Bible and I'm right and Jay's wrong and not listen to him, that would be a problem too. So there's a there's a communal aspect of this. But Sam, did you have something? I was just thinking in connection with the same idea that holding a different view and, and coming to us, agreeing to disagree, agreeing to disagree does not mean Give up right. a particular understanding. Right. When I come to a, uh-huh. I believe is a well-developed biblical position, and sometimes mm-hmm. someone else disagrees with. And agreeing to disagree doesn't mean I have to give it up, and we never talk about it. Right. Yeah. It, it, it has to be flushed out of our mm-hmm. doctrinal understanding. Right. Well, and again, I, I'm mentioning this just because it's easy, um, and I don't feel any struggle doing it. But again, on issues that I disagree with Pastor Jay on. Um, if I'm preaching from the pulpit, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. No, because I, I, I don't want to create this unity. I, that to me, that would be wrong. So I believe it, but I don't have to preach every single thing I believe all the time, right? <laughs> exactly. So, um, but I mean, he's he's the pastor. He's the head pastor. I, I, I feel he has complete right to preach on that subject. <laughs> and if when I when I disagree with him, I ought to listen and be humble. Admit I could be wrong, but I don't have a problem discussing these these issues. And I have my views. And if I'm wrong, I hope somebody proves me wrong. But yeah, and we can let the differences uh, not affect our fellowship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and allow us to cause us to rethink our own position. Mm-hmm. Why do I believe? Do right, I believe? right. And we could be wrong. So if we never listen to people we disagree with, then we're really... Open ears to hear yeah. something that might prove me right. wrong. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I would I would really hate if we separate to the point where there's nobody in our church that disagrees with us, ever. <laughs> <laughs> and we can't learn anything. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's, there's a balance here. There is separation matters. We need to do it sometimes, but we do it over much, too. Right, I want to pray for us, and I don't mind talking with anybody that wants to talk, but... I don't want to keep you too long either. Father, thank you for your word. And as we think about these men in the past, um, that really they stood up for, for the truth of your word. And many times they suffered greatly for it. Um, many of them were, were killed and, and tortured and um, persecuted. Father, as we think about men of the past, um, 
in women of the past, but as we think about uh, believers of the past, Father, we do want to, to emulate what they got right. Um, and we don't want to be quick to judge them. We want to be able to, to learn and listen um, to their, their convictions about your truth and about Scripture. And Father, I pray that as we, as we do study, um, study these, these, these movements and this history and this theology, um, that you will cause us to examine our own minds and our own hearts and um, help us to, to do so through the light of your word, but to, to hear uh, maybe critiques of our modern assumptions. But Father, I pray that you will also help us not to repeat mistakes of the past and to learn from, from the errors of people of the past. So we want to be faithful in the time that you've, you've put us in, and we want to, um, to honor the faithfulness of people in the past standing up for truth. Um, we also want to, um, we also want to, to, to learn um, from, from where, where they were off. So help us, help us to not uh, adopt error and, and untruth, but help us to be, to be single-mindedly um, passionate about, about salvation, about grace, about the gospel, about your truth. Uh, guide us, we pray. We need it.